Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in April 2017. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is writer Lily Wong. In her new book called A Bestiary, it's a genre-transcending work selected by Wayne Kestenbaum as winner of the 2015 Cleveland State University Poetry Center's essay collection. She relentlessly teases apart mythology, familial memory, and investigative essay into searing fragments and weaves them into a dazzling swarm. She models her post-colonial bestiary on the Chinese zodiac. For example, a pack of dogs, a swarm of insects, a mischief of rats, and uses it to represent such concepts as fidelity, beauty, and the disgust of desire. In doing so, she confronts such topics as feminine subjection, familial suffering due to assimilation, and a sister's addiction and death with a precision that's by turns vulnerable and incensed. Lily Wong um, teaches at uh, New Mexico State University. She's director of the MFA program at New Mexico State University. Serves as prose editor at Puerto del Sol and editor for Jaded Ibis Press, author of uh, five books, including this most recent one. Lily Wong, welcome to the program. Hi. Hi. Thank you. We appreciate you uh, being with us. Uh, So you uh, live there in Las Cruces. Yes, I do. Uh, But raised in San Antonio. Yes, that's right. Um, I moved here after graduate school to teach, and I'm from San Antonio, and uh, I'm I'm a strangely proud Texan. <laughs> uh, tell me a little bit about uh, San Antonio. You you've uh, you've said elsewhere that uh, it's you know it's it's not a small town, but it but it has kind of a provincial feel. Yes. Well, when I was growing up there, it was much smaller than it is today. And uh, the way that the neighborhoods are set up, it has much more of a, a feel of a of a big small town, one where people know each other and they know where to go and the grocery stores in the area. Um, but now, whenever I return, it's, it's a much more cosmopolitan place uh, with a lot more art, a lot more music, just a lot more culture. Now you've uh, you've talked elsewhere. I'd, I'd like to have you talk a little bit about this, and, and there's there's a bit of this in in your uh, most recent book. Uh, your your family growing up Asian American uh, there in San Antonio. Uh, so maybe a, a place to start, and you've, you've you've given this in some other interviews. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about your your parents. There's some stereotypes here, but also some some things very universal. As I was hearing some of these anecdotes, I was thinking, yeah, that's it's my parents too. Yes. Um, well, I, I should clarify that I grew up in San Antonio in a, a, a Vietnamese enclave. And so the people who surrounded me were all Vietnamese American immigrants. Um, and therefore, everyone was bilingual. I grew up bilingual. And when I entered elementary school, I didn't understand that not everyone spoke this hybrid language that I spoke. And so when I when I began middle school, I thought everyone would be able to understand 100% of what I was saying, only to learn that they could only understand 50% of the words that I was saying. Mm. And so that was a bit of a shock. Um, my parents are uh, wonderful human beings who try very hard and have tried very hard to give me the best upbringing that I could, and in, in so doing have instilled a a really iron work ethic in me. Um, Growing up, I was given three options if I had spare time, and that was to do homework, 
or do extra homework, uh, practice the violin or piano or take a nap. And so I actually have learned very quickly how to fall asleep and to, to maximize nap time as something of a playtime. Mm. Uh, but yes, growing up, my parents were very strict. Um, they, they just wanted a better life for me that was very much so housed in the American dream. And that uh, my parents taught me very young that in order for me to succeed in life, I had to uh, do better than the dominant, uh, which, which would be white people. And that I had to impress them or else that I would not be respected by them. And whereas now I can understand that that was a problematic way of, of looking at both race and um, notions of success, at, growing up as a child, that's all that I knew and that's all that I could understand, was that there was um, simultaneously a competition involved but also that I was at a disadvantage. And so I spent a lot of time as a child uh, very lonely because I thought that the only way that I could gain friendship or trust of other people, much less respect, was to be better than them. Hmm. This is this is an impulse in, among a lot of immigrants, isn't it? Uh, the, the, a kind of a push, at, uh, at least a perception that well, my children have got to, they start kind of behind, and so, at least in perception, so they've got to try harder to succeed. Absolutely. Uh, that's something that I've heard from a lot of children of immigrants. And I'm not entirely sure that it's, it's false, uh, but I do know that it impacts the development of a child in ways that could potentially be unhealthy. Uh, in many ways, I am a success story for an immigrant family because I am now a professor, I'm a published writer, but that's come at the sacrifice of uh, a work ethic that is sometimes verging on unhealthy because I work so hard in order to try to achieve things that are perhaps even not humanly possible. Um, people often ask me how I'm, how I get so much stuff done and I'll joke that it's because I'm a robot, but in fact, it's just because I, I have this instilled in me as a child that I have to be, uh, extremely productive and smart and, and successful. And if not, I would not, I would not have any respect. I would not have any friends. I would not have any colleagues really. Hmm. It would just be me alone suffering. Uh, what was, tell me a little bit more what it was like being a child, being raised in San Antonio. You're in this, you know, Vietnamese American enclave, but you're part of San Antonio as well. It, and, uh, that transition, you, you didn't even know you were bilingual, didn't focus on that until you got to school and then it became a source of embarrassment, right? Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, I'm not, I don't actually know that it was a source of embarrassment, uh, especially as a child, because I only knew my own experience, right? Um, in elementary school, I didn't have any friends. And I'm not saying that hyperbolically, I actually didn't have any friends uh, because I was such a, I was a, a lonely child who didn't think that I perhaps even deserved friends because unless I can prove my superiority, there wouldn't be acceptance. And it wasn't until I was in middle school or high school that I learned that 
A, I could have friends, but B, to be embarrassed of my otherness, that it was something that other people would judge me for. Uh, when I was a child, my parents used to ask me if I was a Vietnamese girl or an American girl, uh, therefore dividing it, right? I could only be one or the other uh, without this hybridization of Asian American. Asian American actually is, is a fairly new identity. It wasn't until the 1960s that that as a term came into existence. Um, but as far as growing up in San Antonio, as a child, I didn't experience much of the city. Uh, having immigrant parents um, who were, I mean, working very hard to make ends meet meant that I didn't have a lot of the luxuries that other children have. Uh, but by the time I was in middle school and high school, I started to explore the city more. But I didn't, um, I didn't do many of the things that other children in San Antonio did. Uh, but I had other privileges, such as my parents really valued music. And so I would go to the symphony. I played the violin. I was a part of the youth orchestra. And, and that provided me with the opportunity to travel. I went to Mexico, I went to Germany, and I went to Australia um, with, through music. And so I, I, did have, uh, I did have a lot of culture available to me, but it was limited um, insofar as what my parents thought would be acceptable or, or not acceptable. So another instance of this would be uh, pop culture. Uh, when I was when I was younger, I would watch a TV show, let's say, and when one of the characters on the television show spoke back to his or her parents, my father would walk by and turn off the television and say, "That's how American kids speak. You don't speak to your parents that way." And to this very day, I've only spoken back to my father once, and um, and I'm 36 now. <laughs> So that's quite a feat, but it was it was uh, an extreme situation where my sister was dying and he was eating rotten cake, and I and I got very upset at him for eating this cake that had mold in it, uh, and he hasn't let me he hasn't let me forget <laughs> that I spoke back to him that one time. <laughs> what? Why was he eating rotten cake? Uh, well, it was recently his birthday, and my brother had bought him a an Italian wedding cake, which is very good, but we had not put it to in the refrigerator, and so he was being stubborn and eating this cake that was rightfully his, even though it had gone bad. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, it was uh, a passive-aggressive punishment mm -hmm. for my mother for not properly putting away the cake, <laughs> but... What he said was, when I, when I said, please don't eat the cake, he said, well, I'm of a stronger constitution than you are because I'm an immigrant and I come from Vietnam. Mm. You are a weak American, so you could not eat this cake, but I can eat this. <laughs> I get, it gives me a bit of a sense of your, your, your father. That, that there, there's a, a steel there, right, that's probably in most first-generation immigrants. It's, it's a hard journey to make. It is a very hard journey to make, and I completely appreciate everything that my parents have sacrificed for me to have the life that I have. And I work very hard to uh, show them how much I appreciate it. 
both through my work and uh, personally. Mm-hmm. You know, I thank them constantly. And that's, it's, it's true. I'm very grateful for them for giving me the values that I have and giving me the possibility of the life that I have. I want to uh, get into the bestiary, but uh, just a couple more questions on this, because I think it's very it's very important for us to, to, to look at this experience, the immigrant experience. And, of course, it's permeating our politics uh, today. Um, right. You're, tell me a little bit more about your parents' experience. I think they first landed in Pennsylvania. Yes, they first landed in Pennsylvania in 1975. And because Vietnam is a very tropical environment, uh, they had a hard time adjusting to Pennsylvania. And so they then moved to San Antonio. One of my, um, my, my aunt, who's my, my mother's sister, her husband found a job in San Antonio. And so they had immigrated to San Antonio or migrated to San Antonio with my grandmother. And shortly thereafter, my parents followed because they were told that the climate was more fitting and there were other job opportunities that were not available in the smaller places in Pennsylvania that they lived before. And I'm actually not sure where in Pennsylvania they lived before. Mm-hmm. It's all part of the the fairy tale of the migrant experience. Right, 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 right. Um, yeah. What, what, what displaced them? Was it the war in yes. Vietnam? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's part of the, you know, the... the, the a lot of immigrants, uh, well, I would imagine many immigrants come because the, the, they're seeking a better life and then you know, the place where they are, including refugees, it's it's just not viable for them anymore. Right, right. Um, yes, my parents came to the United States because there was a war happening, but also because a lot of Vietnamese people, a lot of people around the world have a firm belief in the American dream that anything is possible here and that you would have a better life by being in the United States than anywhere else in the world. And one of the things that uh, I was very interested in and have been very interested in is the way that Vietnam was portrayed to me when I was a child, the stories that became fairy tales, that became mythologies in my life, that Vietnam was a very uh, hot, obviously, but corrupt and dirty place and it was not a place that I wanted to be it was not a place that I even wanted to visit necessarily it was a a dangerous and scary place and when I actually went to visit when I was 30 it was a completely startling experience to see this beautiful country that that did in fact have a lot of dirt that's true and it was very warm that's also true and I'm sure that there's corruption as there is corruption in any country but I was I was stunned by the ways in which uh, I had imagined this place. I was working on a PhD for a while in geography, and my focus was going to be on the way second-generation immigrants imagine a homeland they've never been to, in part because that was my own personal experience, based on the narratives that my parents gave me and pop culture. I had an idea of an imagined Vietnam, that very much so clashed with the place itself. Hmm. No, in a very different way, that would be the the same, I guess, for for everyone. We'd we'd imagine Vietnam through the movies, or we'd, we we right. think about it through the prism of the war, or whatever. Right. Um, that that's absolutely true for all people and of all places. But I think that it was especially pertinent to me, just because that is 
my homeland that I had no real experience or connection with. Uh, but since that trip to Vietnam when I was 30, I, anytime I travel, I make it a point to not have any, to not look at any pictures or depictions of the place that I'm about to go to. That way, when I walk out of the airport and experience the place for the first time, it's with a, a clean understanding or, or not a, a non-preconceived understanding of the place so that I can see it perhaps for the first time. Mm. Um, of course, you know, a place like uh, Martinique, which is in the French Caribbean, that's a little easier for me to say, okay, well, I have no idea what this place is. Uh, I get to experience it for the first time. But a place like Rome or Paris, one has very set notions of what this place could be. And uh, so that, that changes things. But in general, it's, it's a strategy that I've been using, and I've been very happy and delighted with all of the different places that I've visited and the ways in which one imagines things versus how they are in reality. Do you have a, do you think you have a better experience, more enjoyable experience going to a place you've never been, have no preconceptions versus a place where you do have preconceptions? Yes. I, I think it's a great experience to experience a place for the first time and and to not be marred by the different ways that that pop culture or books or television have built this this imagined space uh of course there are places that just don't disappoint such as paris you know all of the all of the movies all everything that's been told to you about paris you get to paris and it's really that great you know, it's really that romantic. It's really, you know, the, the streets are, as they say, the people really are sitting at cafes having conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so I'm, I'm actually heading to South Africa on May 1st, and I have no idea what to expect. And mm-hmm. that is, that makes the journey extremely exciting. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Perhaps I've got uh, some some reservations and some trepidation, but mostly I I'm thrilled that I get to experience this place without any idea of, of what is there beforehand. And in some ways, perhaps this is an ignorant way of traveling, and I should know things about a place before I get there. But I do once I arrive, do a fair amount of research. Hmm. But I want to I want I want to be immersed in something. Um, in in the moment. I want to be immersed in that place right when I get out of the plane, right when I enter the city. Yeah, that sounds, um, makes sense to me, yeah. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I, I don't know if I think if I were to go to Paris, I would be expecting, you know, rose-colored street lamps and Edith Piaf playing through loudspeakers. Uh, that's uh, I'm, I'm guessing that's not it, but you said uh, Paris does live up to the... To the, I guess oh, the Paris lives percent. up to the expectations. It really does. And it, it wasn't the first moment that I stepped into Paris that did it. I, I actually went to Paris with my mother. She uh, has done very little traveling, and I was doing a book tour through Europe this summer. And so she, she met me in Germany, where we have a lot of Vietnamese German relatives, oddly. And we drove into Paris. And so because they're Vietnamese immigrants, we went first to excuse me, Chinatown in Little Vietnam. And so I had this completely different feel of what Paris could be, which was very much like any other Chinatown, only people were speaking French. But after I left my mother, 
and I walked through the, the city and sat down for the first time at a cafe, that's when I was flooded with what Paris, the Paris that I had imagined. I was sitting in a square and there were just people everywhere having conversations. Not and And I was very recognizable as an American because I was the only one with my laptop out and looking at my telephone. Everyone else was really engaged in conversation and with being in the moment of, of whoever their companion is and just appreciating things. And so it, it is a different way of, I think, being and existing in a, in a location that is very specific and the ways that I have been, um, not just raised, but, but taught to, to respond to, external stimulus makes me very markedly an American. And the same was true for most of Europe. Do you think that is, uh, do you think that is uh, quintessentially American? You know, we're kind of stuck on our technology. We're not, we're not sometimes present with the person, people we are with. Um, I'm not sure that it's quintessentially American, but it is something that I've noticed in other locations that I've visited that there isn't the um, strong emphasis on a self-alienation through a mediation, a mediated technology. Hmm. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to uh, follow up on this idea of what you said uh, didn't kick in until maybe high school, but... Uh, but you, you you felt that people were pressuring you to to make a choice. You're either American or you're, or you're Vietnamese, and you you can't be both. I'll ask you if you think that's uh, changed in the intervening years. Um, and we'll get into uh, Bestiary, very interesting uh, new work from Lily Wong. More with Lily Wong following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Dining Services Noni's Coffee Shop, located inside of Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art on the USU campus, serving vegan and vegetarian items. Open Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. Why is music so important to cultures and to the anthropologists who study them? Everywhere in the world, music conveys thoughts, feelings, and ideas. Because it is such a strong medium for expressing identity, ethnomusicologists carefully document musical traditions of the people they study. They recognize that music serves as a window to deeper elements of culture. For example, music communicates struggle and oppression of a group. Likewise, music is so fundamental to human experience that it also serves to bridge communities and cultures. By learning about the culture's music, we discover how people define themselves, relate, and coexist. This segment of Anthropology, What's It to You, has been made possible by our members and the USU Museum of Anthropology collection, including pre-Columbian Peruvian ceramics, Indonesian textiles, and Great Basin. Details at anthromuseum.usu.edu. President Trump falsely claims a border fence in El Paso has drastically cut down on crime. With a powerful barrier in place, El Paso is one of the safest cities in our country. Data suggests the link between a barrier and less crime isn't true, but the president is going to the city to make his point again Monday afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. That's this afternoon from 3 to 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. 
Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in April 2017. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is writer Lily Wong. Uh, she uh, teaches, she's director of the MFA program at New Mexico State University. She serves as prose editor at Puerto del Sol, editor for Jaded Ibis Press. She's author of five books, including the latest, A Bestiary, which is winner of the inaugural Cleveland State University Poetry Center's nonfiction contest. Also, Changing, which was the recipient of the Penn Open Books Award. And with Joshua Marie Wilkinson, she edited the anthology of Force of What's Possible, Writers on Accessibility and the Avant-Garde. So, Lily Wong, um, you, you've, you've said in a, in a separate interview, I just want to read this, um, talking about your parents... You say they're simply not acclimated to American life. They want for me to be the best parts of American and the full part of Vietnamese, and that's an impossible task. They don't seem to understand that. Uh, for example, humorous anecdote here. This <laughs> gives me another taste of your father's. It sounds like quite a guy. You say that to this day, he reminds you, you can still go to medical school if you really want to make them happy. Yes. Yes, that's true. Um Every time I visit, uh, which is about twice a year, my parents very slyly suggest that I could have many other career options if I chose to. Um, or my father said, oh, you know, it's a waste of your very good brain that you're just a professor. Um, you have the brain of a scientist or you have a brain of a mathematician or someone who could do computer science. But I guess it's okay that you've chosen to be a writer. Um, <laughs> My mother has told me that I would make an excellent diplomat because she's heard that English majors can become dipl diplomats. <laughs> um, and, and so my parents are, where is their, you know, I don't want to make it seem as though they aren't proud of me because they are, but they also had a different vision of what American success would look like, and that is primarily uh, as a medical doctor that the best way that you could be happy is by being successful and rich, and the best way that one can become successful and rich is to become a medical doctor. Hmm. And, and so this is, I mean, this is part of their idea of the American dream, right, for, for their children to yes. be successful in this very specific way. Yes, yes, it is. Um, and... And they really did expect me to, to do this. And in fact, I had I had expected that I would do this. Uh, high school was was loaded with science classes, um, all advanced placement science, every advanced placement science class and math class that I could take. I was not interested in writing or English in high school. And it wasn't until I got to college that I had my great rebellion by not pursuing the sciences, but instead pursuing the liberal arts. Uh, so I want to explore this idea you said earlier in this hour that at a certain point you realized that at least some people were expecting you or wanting you to, to nail down your identity as either American or Vietnamese, and that, that, that in their minds you couldn't be both. Right. I think this was primarily my parents and the other immigrant population, the other um, Vietnamese immigrant population, uh, that I had surrounded myself with. But the second-generation immigrants, um, they much more so embraced this uh, hybridization of identity, this uh, what used to be, um, you know, 
Asian dash American, right? So that so that there could be both at once. And so both growing up and to this day, I sometimes fall into the binary thinking that I could either be one or the other. And I think that that's a, um, it's, it's a misguided and a flawed way of thinking about identity because, uh, you know, feminist studies tells us that there are a vast number of intersections that create identity, which go beyond gender and race and include uh, class, sexual orientation, size, um, all of these different other ways of looking at one's identity, this matrix of, of uh, things that, that create who you are, that it can't be simplified down to just one area. And so for my parents to create this binary of you can either be one or the other really limits what an identity can be. I want to connect this just briefly to the larger uh, current political climate and conversation. Um, I, I just, I'm just curious, what's what's the conversation there in Las Cruces, which is pretty close to the border? Um, you know, I'm I'm not quite sure what the conversation is. People are, of course, uh, scared and frightened of what this administration can and has done already. Um, I, I don't have a lot of interaction with uh, people from Ciudad Juarez, which is right across the street. Um, literally, if you drive down I-10 heading towards El Paso, the, which is the airport that I fly into and out of, you can see Ciudad Juarez from I-10, and it's a completely different place. It's uh, It looks different. It feels different. And whereas I haven't crossed the border there because of, you know, any number of reasons, it's it is a stark contrast to what is on the American side. Hmm. Um, and this idea of identity, you know, that's that's really come to the fore. It's, it's always percolating, you know, at, at, at any time in America. But I think it's really come to the forefront, you know. To, some people uh, want to enforce an idea of what is an American, right? And and uh, But... But uh, I guess each individual, especially in immigrant communities, have have a uh, unique experience of what it is to to be American and to feel American. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and because I only have my own experience, I can only speak about that. I don't know how other people were raised or what they were brought up thinking or feeling. Um, and that that goes not just for Americans in general, but also Vietnamese Americans, different parents raise their children differently. And so I have only my experience that I can talk about. And hopefully there will be some um, insight or overlap with other people that could help them uh, be invested in my story and what I, the story that I tell. Uh, but I, I think that the issue of identity in America is, a really important one now more than ever because we are limiting the number of people who can come, who can fly into this country even. And it's, it's frightening because, uh, because the United States is a melting pot. Um, having traveled a lot recently, I can see exactly how unique the United States is. We 
even even in areas that are extremely privileged and have uh, predominantly one race or the other, um, it's still there's still places that people are are mingling together and creating a community together. I live on the border, like you said, and there there's community among all of the races. Um, not to say that there isn't also racism or discrimination, because those things exist in in obvious ways uh, throughout the United States, and especially with this election. But I think on a micro level, there 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 are bridges being built. Um, when Trump was first elected, I was giving a reading at uh, Illinois State University, and the the mood was very somber, and I went and visited some classrooms, and the undergraduates were especially moving to me because uh, it's, it's a very, uh, there's, there's a large black population there, and the students spoke not with fear or anger, but they understood that at this moment, the best thing that they could do was um, embrace hope and embrace the possibility of conversation. Hmm. And that conversation is the best way of building those bridges and ensuring that overt racism does not poison this country. Hmm. That's very hopeful, and I guess that that, that is that is a, a hope. If you know, if if it's person to person, right? And it's and and, and hopefully right. with young people. Uh, I want to jump into a bestiary, um, your, your latest book. Um, so tell me about the title first of all. Uh, well, the title a bestiary is um, it's it's a compendium of real and imagined animals. And so when I first began this book, the book has a very definitive beginning. It begins, uh, for, my, for my writing of the book, it begins with the chapter um, on dragons, um, which is called, sorry, um, On My Birthday, Dragons and Intestines. I wrote this, this essay on my 33rd birthday. And then the, the next essay that I wrote about it had to do with rats. And it was called On Rats in Captivity, which I've now changed to On the Rat Race. But then what I did was I, because I uh, hate to waste things, I looked at these two essays because I had written two essays. And I said, well, what does a rat and a dragon have in common that I can possibly do with? And I said, well, of course, the Chinese Zodiac. Um, And so that's how the book really began, was with two essays that seemingly had nothing to do with each other other than animals. And I then built an essay collection around it. Let me have you read a few passages, beginning with the introduction, which, uh, to alert listeners, it's, it's one sentence. Sure. This is my introduction. Once upon a time, shh, shh, this is only a fairy tale. Hmm. So you've said that you understand the world through fairy tales. Uh, uh, how so? Um, well, I think that my life is magical, for one, and and I say that uh, half jokingly and but mostly seriously. Uh, I live my life in a a constant state of of fifty percent turmoil and fifty percent marvel, 
which is to say I do my fair share of, of, of suffering and, and hand-wrenching and, and worrying. But I also walk through the world and see how beautiful everything can be and is. You know, it's, it's really important to appreciate the things that surround you and the things that one is capable of or the world is capable of and just appreciating beauty and magic that, that is everywhere. Hmm. And that Marvel, that's uh, yeah, that would seem like a, a good lens. Um, and um, maybe something that, that we all need to, to get a little, little more of it was, you know, it's, it's a, a new way of seeing the world. It is. It's a really wonderful way of seeing the world to um, be constantly surprised by the generosity of others or to be constantly surprised by what nature can do. And so this introduction, this is a collection of essays. This is a collection of nonfiction. Um, But to clarify to the reader that this is part of a fairy tale um, or fairy tales are a part of our real world is to ask people to engage in a belief of what is possible and what is magical. And I think that it's sad that so many people are, are caught in, you know, this rat race of the American dream that we, we focus only on work and, and getting more and getting more until we can buy all of the things that we want while not having sufficient time to appreciate them. You know, I can work hard for that big screen TV, but if I'm too exhausted at the end of the day to appreciate it, what's the purpose of that big TV? Right. I wonder if I have you read just the first page from uh, from The Rat Race, the first essay. Sure. Uh, on The Rat Race. It is not a desire to play games. It is an urge, a yearning, an addiction. When I was young, my sister went to prison. I don't know why she went, because no one will tell me. My sister died nearly three years ago. I stopped asking why before Once Upon a Time began. I have renamed her my dead sister. Although born in the year of the monkey, my dead sister was a real rat. I admire that about her. Sometimes I can be a rodent, too. My mother and I play games on our electronic devices. It's early, maybe five in the morning. The sun has not yet lifted darkness from the sky, and we're both up and tapping away at our iPads. My mother had stayed up late playing, too. I fell asleep after midnight, and she was playing. I woke up to get a sip of water, and she was playing. I got up to go to the bathroom, and she was playing. I woke up too early, and she was still playing. I wondered then, as now, if she'd slept at all or if the games she played induced a certain desired insomnia, one pressured by compulsion and pleasure. Or maybe she had been excited that I was home visiting, and that had kept her awake. Or maybe this was her natural circadian. Or maybe there was something else bothering her, an icy ache. My dead sister left behind two sons. One has become healthy, the other a heroin addict, a recovering heroin addict. And, uh, and then later on, you you tell more of your sister's story, and of course, uh, your family story. And there are themes here. Uh, first one I want to treat is um, this renaming of your your sister. I found that very poignant. I have renamed her my dead sister. 
What do you yes. talk a little bit well, about that? Well, that's really only within the confines of the book. I actually mm-hmm. don't walk around my everyday life talking right. about my dead sister and my right. dead sister. But within the book, there's something, you know, when I first started writing this book, or actually before I started writing this book, I had felt that I didn't have a right to uh, talk about my sister, to talk about the life that she had led or the suffering that she had experienced was to somehow capitalize on her, her death in a way that felt very disingenuous and um, perhaps just capitalistic. Uh, But then when I wrote the essay about the dragons, um, it was something that I couldn't help anymore. And it was, it was something that had been on my mind for three years. And so I started writing about it. And once I had given myself that permission to write about it once, I could then go and really explore it. And, you know, my, my sister's life is something that, that takes uh, real, um, the real spotlight for, you know, maybe a third to half of the book, but then it changes into something else where it, where that um, constant focus shifts into a focus on myself and um, other things that are happening to me. Um, but it was also necessary for me to write these things because my sister's death uh, informed who I was and created who I was as a person. And since then, I've, I've really become a different person because I experienced this trauma of losing not just someone you love, but a sibling. And losing her in a way before her death, right? She was, she became addicted. Uh, and uh, I just want to read this, uh, this sentence from page 13. Once many years ago, my dead sister achieved the American dream, and then she lost it, destroyed it, abandoned it, as she had with me too. Yes. Um, and, and it's, it's true. My sister, owned a multi-million dollar construction company that she built from scratch. You know, she she was an amazing human being, and she did just incredible things with her life. But she was also an addict, and she also um, had a difficult upbringing. It's as, as difficult as it was for me to grow up with this um, hybrid identity uh, you know, Asian hyphen American. She grew up as an Asian immigrant. She came over to the States when she was five. And she had, whereas I grew up bilingual and entered the school with 50% of language, she entered school with 0% language. She had to recreate an entire identity for herself. And my brother as well, who is a year younger than her. And so it's, it's a difficult and almost impossible um, feat to survive. And yet, not only did my siblings do this, and all Vietnamese immigrant children, but all immigrants in the United States have to go through this. Hmm. Uh, what you, you say your, you know, your sister, her experience, her death, uh, that helped form who you are. There's a, there's a trauma there that, that helped form you. 
what is what have you come to now in the process of writing about her? Um, is, is she present with you in a different way? Well, I think that writing this book helped me um, understand more about her life and her circumstances. And one of the things that I really tried to do with this book, um, and one of the ways that I convinced myself that it was okay for me to write this book, was that um, I tried to be as rigorously honest about everyone in my life as I as I am to myself. That is, no one in this book is scrutinized more than I scrutinize myself. And so that made it acceptable and um, important for me personally to write this book. Mm. Um, I don't know if uh, the pages I have on this PDF match up with, with the book you have, but um, I wonder if you could uh, turn to page 20. Uh, just the, the paragraph at the bottom, page 20. Um, I, work uh, in, I work in order to play games? Yes. Or I work in public? Yes. Okay. I work in public in order to not play games. Something about surveillance and shame. With so many witnesses, games are for children, not adults with real jobs. I admit my immaturity. If asked, I would say games activate different parts of the brain, but if I don't know, uh, but I don't know if that's true. Say it with enough confidence, and it will be. If asked, I would say games give me time to reflect and understand that which I do not yet know. Hmm. I found that very interesting. I work in public in order to not play games, and th- this is a, a bit of a theme here. That, you know, this this idea of games. Right. Well, that's that's actually a very literal thing. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm at home by myself, I'll play games on my phone. I'll play games on my laptop. I use it as an escape mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, I work very hard, and there are times when I need to turn off my brain, and that's what I do. I play games. Um, but I can avoid doing this thing, which I find to be at once very satisfying but also a waste of one's time, right? This is something that my parents instilled in me. I was given three options, like I said, you know, study, play an instrument, or take a nap. Nowhere in there is the idea of, of fun or play. And so I carry the shame and guilt of wanting escape sometimes when that's not a productive use of my time mm-hmm. to my parents. And, and in some ways to myself, because it's been so instilled in me. Yeah, I and guess so. Something about the surveillance of, mm-hmm. of other people constantly watching me means that I won't be able to do something that I want to do out of social shame. Mm. And, uh, you know, in, in today's culture, um, you know, it, a lot of people seek that out, that surveillance, at least. Uh, or maybe it's not surveillance in that case. You put stuff out on Facebook or you, or you tweet something or you. You know, right. you, but I guess that's curated. You're doing the curation there. You're you're putting out selected parts of your life. You're not you're not being surveilled on for for everything you're doing. Right. It's it's a very funny way of um, embracing a desire for other people to approve of what you're doing. Right. Um, and and I guess in other ways, doing work in public means that other people can see me doing work. They can see what a hard worker I am. And so even if 
they don't publicly acknowledge it, there's something satisfying in knowing that I'm doing something correct. I'm doing something right. And what I'm doing is helping to build um, my, forge my way towards success, right? I'm a hard worker. Um, and Facebook in many ways works the same way where you're trying to create an identity for yourself through these different channels and through these different mediums. So um, if I go to a cafe and people see me grading, they'll say, oh, what a, what a hardworking professor, what a good professor. Um, in the same way, if I go online and I say something about my students, they could say, oh, look at what a great professor she is. And it's the same thing. Um, and, and so you're looking for a public acknowledgement that what you're doing is good or fun or right. Uh, it builds an identity for you that is, that is related to your actual identity, but is also one that is fabricated. By the way, um, your Twitter handle, <laughs> at Camera Insecura. Um, yeah. there, it's, it's, it's clever, it's catchy. There's, um, I'm sure there's something going on there. What, what are you yeah, saying with that? Handle? Well, I mean, it's, it's a, a, it's a play on camera obscura, mm-hmm. but it's also that I don't, I don't really like cameras. I don't like taking pictures necessarily. Um, although this is something that I've been working on and, and I've been taking more pictures as of late, mm-hmm. uh, of, of things that I experience as well as of myself, um, but yes, it, it started off of a pun of camera obscura, mm-hmm. um, and moved into something that I saw in myself as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a pun that is fun. And, uh, you know, maybe a lot of us going through that, it seems like to, today to really exist, you, you gotta be on social media, right? But it's, some of us are a little, are, are, you know, a little camera shy, a little a little insecure about that. Uh, just, we just have a couple minutes left. I uh, wonder what, uh, what's, what's coming next. Ah, um, I just finished a novel. It's um, actually just a couple weeks ago, or maybe even last week. I can't remember. It's, it's been a blur. Um, but my process of revision is I retype from, from the very first word. And so I was very lucky. I went to um, DCCA, which is uh, an artist. Uh, residency for 10 days, and I retyped my entire manuscript, so it's 320-something pages. But the book is based on real-life events, a woman named Martha in the early 1980s in Georgia had used the bulk of her body to roll over her children and suffocate them to death, four of them, ranging in age from three months to 11 years old over a period of five years. And so the book is about a monster, right? This woman did something that is inexcusable and and absolutely terrifying. But it also um, questions notions of guilt and and who who are the people that surround her that or informed who she was growing up that might have helped build this monster. That sounds. And and what are the ways that she's just human Mm -hmm. versus versus someone heinous? Yeah, that does sound fascinating. Tell me again the title. Uh, it's called A Song for Martha. Okay. And it's currently being looked at at, at some publishers, um, but it, I had just finished it uh, maybe 10 days ago. Wow. that's uh, So maybe take a little break now? 
yes, I'm going to take a little break, uh, hopefully for a while, although my most active writing time is during the summer. Mm -hmm. So hopefully I'll get some new work um, written. But I am fairly exhausted from the creative process right now. Yeah, I imagine. Uh, well, the, uh, the new book, A Bestiary, is out and available. Uh, Lily Wong, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour... Reggae music by Bob Marley and his many family members and former bandmates, as well as reggae songs sung by other artists from around the world. Africa, I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for a Bob Marley family birthday party on the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Fritz Kreisler played this concerto for years, saying it was a previously unknown piece by Vivaldi. A music writer for the New York Times suspected that was a yarn and asked Kreisler about it. The music and the true story behind this concerto on the next Performance Today from APM. Coming up tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org. Have you checked out the UPR app? You can go online to your favorite app store and, with applications for Apple and Android, you can listen to UPR wherever you go, worldwide. Find us at upr.org.